What I'd like you to take your Bibles now and open them to Revelation chapter 15. And tonight I'd like to bring part number two, the message that I began last week, preparing for plagues. Uh, the plagues that we're speaking of are the last of God's judgments that will come on the earth near the end of the tribulation period. And as I mentioned last week, we have uh, spent long months studying the tribulation, and I am about ready for this to end. Uh, I want to get to the part where Christ is gloriously reigning in his kingdom, and we see all of God's people in peace and safety in a time when uh, we're not troubled by Satan any longer, and all those hordes of demonic forces that he has that help him, they're, they're all put away from us, and we never have to worry about those again. And we're getting close to that. As we go through our study, we're, we're winding down, uh, getting closer and closer to the time of the millennial reign of Christ. And I am thankful that the plagues of chapters 15 and 16, 15 is the preparation for those plagues, these are the last that come upon the earth. And when these are finished, Satan has been pushed aside. He's bound with chains. And then Christ is ruling in the millennial kingdom. But as I said, this is territory that we have to go through. This is part of the story. And we just have to do the best we can to explain this particular part and then look forward as I have mentioned Christ's millennial kingdom. But we're studying the entire 15th chapter, which is the time of preparation. And at this point of our study, all seven seals on the scroll have been broken. The uh, seventh and last seal contains a great deal of activity because with the seventh seal, there are seven trumpet judgments. Seven angels come and they blow trumpets. And each time a trumpet is blown, it increases the intensity of judgments that are poured out on the earth. And we have completed the sounding of six of those trumpets, and now we're looking at what happens with the sounding of the seventh. And the seventh one is the most intense because it's divided into another seven parts in which these last seven plagues are poured out on the earth. These are the vials of God's wrath. And when these are through, then Christ is, or God is through, purging the world before the millennial age begins. Now, chapter 16 is the part that actually tells us about the plagues. Uh, chapter 17 through 19 give us the details of the last vial of God's wrath that's poured out. And uh, most of you know that time is the Battle of Armageddon. And we'll get to that when we get to those chapters. So we've called chapter 15 the preparation for the plagues because here's where God is preparing these angels to come out. They're dressed for the battle and marching orders are then handed down. Uh, the sermon is in three parts covering all of the 15th chapter. But since I read the entire chapter last week, let me just read to you the part that we're going to deal with tonight. And I'll, I'll just leave you sitting there if you don't mind sitting for just a moment uh, longer here instead of standing for the reading. But in chapter 15, verse number 1, John says, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And uh, as we go through the message tonight, some of the things that I say may surprise you a little bit when I speak of the wrath of God, and, and we'll, you'll see what I mean in a moment. Uh, verse number 2, And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? 
for thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for the opportunity to preach your word tonight. And help us, Lord, as we look into this text, that you would open this up before our eyes and to our hearts, and we might really understand um, the wrath of God the holiness of God that's displayed in this. So bless in the message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse number 1 says, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. There are five words that I've chosen throughout this chapter that uh, help us to break this down and present the material that's here. And so the five words I'll give you in these three messages, we've only talked about one of them so far, and that first one was the sign. John says, I saw a sign in heaven. And the word sign is the same as a wonder. I mentioned last week that the word here is great wonder, mega wonder, as the Greek would put it. And uh, we just really have to kind of put ourselves in John's shoes and, and just imagine what it must have been like for him to see these things in heaven. No one would ever think that this poor old man who was left out to die on an island in the sea uh, would have been given such a, such a vision as this. I mean, the way that we would rationalize this, that God would choose someone maybe more prominent than John, surely a greater man than he would be able to uh, give this information to the people at that time. But I thank God that he doesn't measure greatness by the wealth a person has, not by the fame that you have. God looks upon your heart, and if your heart has been cleansed by the blood of Christ, and you have put all of your hope and your confidence in him, then God considers you to be great. And we are great, very simply, folks, because of Christ. It's nothing in us. When Jesus chose out the 70 disciples and gave him them power to preach the word, he said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in thy sight. God doesn't choose the wise of the world. He doesn't often choose doctors and lawyers and socialites to give out his message. But he chooses those that the world would look at are very foolish people and, and delivering what they think is a foolish message. And when they believe this message, then they understand this has to come from the wisdom of God. It doesn't come from the wisdom of the messenger. And I think that's why God chooses the kind of people that he does. People just like you and me, not famous, not with a lot of money, not people that the world is much going to look to, but we have the wisdom that God has given us. And that's the important part, the message, not us. Well, John saw this great wonder in heaven. There are seven angels that are prepared with seven last plagues, and the worst of God's wrath is about to be unleashed upon the earth. Then we see there in that second verse that John saw a sea of glass before the throne, and that sea is mixed with fire. And the fire reminds us of the fiery trials that martyrs have gone through throughout the tribulation period. And also it reminds us of God's vengeance, his revengeful wrath of judgment. And so John sees these martyrs standing on the sea of glass, and these are people who have borne the testimony of God they serve. And they're standing now because they refused to bow earlier. And what I mean is they refused to bow before the Antichrist when he said that uh, they must bow before him and take his mark, take the number of his name, bow before his image. These are people who absolutely would not bow. 
And of course, that reminds us of what happened in the Old Testament when Nebuchadnezzar had the people of Israel enslaved in Babylon, and he built an image, and he told those Hebrew children to bow down and worship that image, and they refused to do so, and they suffered the wrath of the king because of it. And these martyrs who have stood for Christ through all of these different things that are going on in the tribulation period, they wouldn't bow either, and now they stand before the throne of God. And these are not defeated saints. In fact, their defiance is actually their victory. Their defiance is rewarded. And so now they stand before God. Well, we want to notice what they do in verses 3 and 4. It says, And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee. For thy judgments are made manifest. And the second word for this study is the song. They're singing. Now these are people that were crushed by the Antichrist on earth. But we see them here in heaven with the song. And I would say that if you know the Lord, you can't help but sing. When we come to church... I I love to come here for the worship. I love the opportunity that we have to get away from the pressures of the world, the cruelty of the world out there, and just to come into the house of God and to sing and to praise him and to worship him. And I think if you're a person who the God hasn't given you a song, and you can stand there while we sing and you don't have a melody in your heart that burst out into voice, then you really ought to consider whether you actually do know the Lord. Those who know him, God puts a song in your heart. And I think about people who stand during a song service with tight lips and they don't open their mouths. Now, some people may not know the songs. That might be it. But for most of us, we know what, uh, what the songs are. We've sung them before. And I wonder, how is it that the people of God could come into a service and just sit there and, and not sing? I mean, even if you can't carry a tune, still sing. Uh, do, the best of, do it to the best of your ability. Glorify God. Now, these saints are those in heaven that died because of their testimony. The Word of God says they loved not their lives to the death, and they knew that when they would die, that they would be welcomed immediately into the presence of the Lord. And they come into his presence with singing. This evening, I I arrived a little bit earlier, and I just stepped in for a few minutes. Uh, Bob was recharging my batteries. And don't read more into that than, than is actually there. <laughs> but um, that's the, my, ba- my battery pack here on the side. B- uh, Bob's recharging those. And so I was listening to the choir a little bit. And I was just to hear the song that they were singing. Uh, I understand it's a song that they're going to be doing with the young people in a couple of weeks. And it was, sung, it was about the holiness of God. And I stood there and I listened to that song. And I've already told you today, today's been a, you know, it's been a someday for me. I mean, I just get choked up when I, when I hear some of those songs. And I, I, I stood there for a few minutes, and I just had to duck behind the curtain because they were singing about the holiness of God. <clears throat> there I go again. <laughs> you, uh, you, can't, you can't know him and not sing about him. I, I don't understand it. But John hears the singing that's coming from heaven, and an interesting thing here is he recognized one of the songs that they're singing. Maybe John had heard this song when he was growing up in his Jewish home. He recognized this as a song of Moses. 
And there are several songs that are in the scriptures that the Jewish people used to sing. And so John recognized this particular song. It's familiar to him. Now I want you to turn over, if you would, to the book of Exodus chapter 15. And we can read this song. I don't know the tune to it. I can't sing it to you, so you can make up your own tune as to how it would sound when Moses was singing it. Just just don't choose the Barney theme because that one drives me crazy. But you might want to make up a, a tune for this song. Exodus chapter 15, verse number 1. And we're not going to read it all because it has a lot of stanzas to it. Exodus 15, chapter 1. Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord, and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him a habitation. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host hath he cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank into the bottom as a stone. Now, that's a great song. It's a, a great story that's sung and uh, told in song. Actually, what we have here is like a ballad. You ever heard the ballad of Davy Crockett? Somebody have ever heard that? Or have you heard the uh, Beverly Hillbillies ballad? Come listen to a story about a man named Jed, a poor mountaineer who kept his family fed. You know what I'm talking about? Well, this is a much better ballad than that, much better song. So what are they singing about? Well, I have three words here to tell you what they're singing about. And they're, the first one here may be a little bit odd to you, but this is a song about execution. Now, how many of you would like to sing an executioner's song? That's what they're singing in heaven. And Moses was singing when he wrote this song about the execution of uh, Pharaoh's army. Now, you know the story of how that Israel was trapped between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. They were bearing down upon Moses and the children of Israel, and Israel had nowhere to go. And so Israel is standing there at the Red Sea when God miraculously parted the waters, and then the children of Israel were able to walk across the sea on dry ground. And while they were crossing the sea... And there, are, there were probably somewhere between two to six million people that, that passed through the Red Sea. And all of that time, God was holding Pharaoh's army back. He couldn't pursue them. And so they got safely on the other side. And then Pharaoh thought, well, here's my opportunity. And so he took his whole arm and he charged right down into the sea. And when he did, God brought his, uh, withdrew his hand from those waters. And the waters came crashing back again into the middle of the sea. And then it drowned Pharaoh and his army. That's always my favorite part of the Ten Commandments. When Charlton Heston parts the Red Sea and then at the end they're all across and then he closes his hand and the sea comes back and all those uh, people in Pharaoh's army are drowned. Well, God is going to do the same thing with the armies of the Antichrist. And I think that's the connection that we see here. The same type of thing is going to happen because God is going to gather all of the Antichrist armies into one place. That will be in the plains of Megiddo in Israel. He gathers them into that one place, and then when he has them all there, God executes them without mercy. Now, they'll come to that place thinking that they're in control. And they have such a huge army that they think they're going to be able to be rid of Christ and all of his followers. And the song of Moses actually reflects this arrogant attitude of God's enemies. In verse number 9 of Exodus 15, The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. 
My lust shall be satisfied upon them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. That's what God's enemies say. But I want you to listen to the response of this arrogant uh, statement in verse number 10. Bowed its blow with the wind. The sea covered them. They sank as lead in the mighty waters. So Pharaoh thought, I've got them now. And he charged into that sea fully thinking that he was going to overcome them and kill all those Israelites. And it says here that God just blew with the wind and the sea covered them and they sank as lead in the mighty waters. Psalm chapter 2 describes this also. We've read this a couple of times. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. So God is the executioner. And in chapter 14... Remember this? He said that he was going to trample them like grapes in a wine vat. And it's not a pleasant thought, but it says that he's going to squeeze out their blood until their blood spurts up on his clothing. Now, it's also a song. Secondly, a song about expectation. The saints have a sure expectation of what God's going to do with them. Now, we go back and we compare Moses' song in verse number 17 of Exodus 15. Thou shalt bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in, in the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established. There, Moses is speaking of how God's people are going to be brought into uh, the promised land and how they're going to... receive the reward of the inheritance there. They're going to dwell in peace and safety. Uh, God's going to have a temple for them. And the same thing again is true of the saints in heaven. They're brought before the throne of God. They also receive the reward of their inheritance that God has promised, and they dwell in peace and safety. Now, the martyrs have been waiting for this. These people killed in the tribulation, they're waiting for this, and they keep asking about the timing. When will vengeance come? And so now here they are before God's throne, uh, standing on the sea of glass, anxiously expecting their vengeance. And I think for a lot of people, that's a scene that's very hard to accept. We're not used to thinking of God in these terms. I mean, here there's carnage, there's a scene of wrath and a scene of devastation. But probably the most amazing part of this whole thing is the glee that takes place because of this. Now, the world would look at this, and they can't really believe this. They haven't heard about a God like this because they're thinking uh, of a, uh, that God is cruel and unfair if he should do such things. And I think it really points out to a wrong view of God. We don't really understand the holiness of God. The Bible is trying to tell us here that God is not going to tolerate sin. Much as we may want to tolerate it, tolerate it and let it go, God does not. And here is the thing that we really need to look at in this. If God would pour out his wrath on his own son, if God would put him to a bloody, agonizing, unmerciful death on the cross in order to rid this world of sin, then what do you think that he's going to do to those that spit on the cross and unashamedly and defiantly go on in their sin? There is no reason to expect that God will have mercy upon the unrepentant. And the glee of God's people is because they're in agreement with God's judgment. And really, that, I, that is the part, I think, that astounds our senses. They're in full agreement with God. God is doing precisely what ought to be done. And this is why they say, just and true are thy ways. That's in verse number 3. Now, that um, 
Again, it's not a picture that the world much sees of God and people ignore these kinds of teachings in the Word of God. We have to look at God in a complete picture. And the only picture we have of God is the one he reveals of himself. We don't know anything about God other than what he's told us in his Word. And so we have to believe everything that he puts here. And it's going to be the same thing that happens when God raises the wicked dead to everlasting punishment. There's not going to be tears in heaven that are shed for the wicked lost. There are not going to be any pleadings for leniency from God's people. There is none. And the reason there isn't is because God's people respect the holiness of God. This is God's justice in action. So there's no tears shed for that. And I think that people uh, think that the scene in heaven will be that when the great white throne judgment comes and the people of God are looking on as God casts people into hell, that people will be broken down and morbid. They'll be crying in heaven because these people have been cast into the everlasting fires of hell. And some even think that God's going to shed a tear. He's going to say something like, oh, I wish that it could have been different. I wish that something else had worked out. Why wouldn't you let me save you? That's a mixed up view of God. When God stands in judgment over the wicked, there is one thing that is paramount, and that is God's glory. God's glory is number one, and that has to be upheld. And so God, at that time, cast the wicked into hell with satisfaction. Now, if that bothers you some, uh, come back, because I'm going to deal with this a little bit more in our study of First John, and I'll show you then that the Bible says that God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. But we're talking about people upon the earth and and their salvation. God doesn't necessarily destroy people for the glee of destroying people. But when it comes time for people to be cast into hell, there's no reservation with God. So it's a very interesting picture. Uh, When Christ died, we don't find anything in the Scripture where it says that God agonized over the decision. And that's because sin had been transferred to Christ. Our sins were upon Christ. And as I described in the Easter message a few weeks ago, God has to punish sin wherever it's found. And when sin was found on his own son, then God had to turn his back on him. And then the Bible tells us that God was satisfied with what Christ did. And the same is true when God passes sentence on the unjust at the final day. Sin has been found on these people. It hasn't been covered under the blood of Christ. And so God is satisfied at that time to plunge their souls into the abyss and then to forever turn his back on them. And the thing about hell is no one is going to cry out from hell. It is finished because it never will be finished. Hell is an everlasting place. So God's people are expecting the vengeance. They're longing for it. And they want to see God finally cast off sin forever. But the forced obedience of the wicked is not really uh, the main thing here. I mean, it's pleasing to them because this is God's justice working. But really, the part that's, that's really joyful to them is the joy of their own obedience. And that's because they've been rewarded by God, and they have the blessed privilege of being in the presence of God throughout eternity. Now, the third thing that we see here in the Song of Moses is that it is a song of exaltation. Verse number 2 in Exodus 15, The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him in habitation. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. And then verse number 11, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Isn't that a marvelous song? I don't know that 
I could um, express to you really the joy of understanding Scripture properly. I mean, did you ever enjoy serving God as much before you came to the realization of, of how our doctrine recognizes the glory of God? I mean, I never tire of telling people that our purpose here is to glorify God. It underlies everything that we do. Every prayer that's prayed, every song that's sung, every sermon preached is for the purpose of the glory of God. When I was at the Shepherds Conference in March, I was talking to a pastor there that within the last two years, he had come to a realization of the truth that he had been locked down and confined in a system that was rules-oriented rather than God-oriented. And uh, he grew up in a typical fundamental church, and he was constantly squeezed by that church to perform. And he said that he realized that he couldn't live up to those standards that those people wanted, and he couldn't be the person who strived for holiness through a list of rules that stretched from here to the parking lot. And then he told of another young lady that was in the church, and she had been caught up in that trap as well, and neither could she live within that straitjacket of human performance. But then he said he began to learn, he began to seek other sources, and he started looking at the doctrines of grace, and in those he found not man's performance, but he found God's performance. And he said that this young lady that was in the church began to see how he was renewed, and she became unshackled from that as well. And her comment was, an amazing one I think, and she put it this way, she said she had been forced into soul winning in order to conform to the standard. But then she said, I learned about God's glory and I learned about God's power in me. And I realized that serving God is not a rule to be kept. It's not a standard to to, to be shackled by. And she said, now I find myself desiring to talk about God. I want to talk about him. And she said her whole attitude changed because now her purpose in life was not pleasing a preacher that ruled her, but pleasing God who rules her life. Do you remember this part of a quote that I uh, gave you concerning another lady who had her eyes open to the doctrines of grace? She said, it's humbling and breathtaking and frightening and thrilling all at once. You ever felt that way about the glory of God? It is humbling and frightening, breathtaking, thrilling all at once. I received a letter from the young man that was examined for ordination a little bit over a week ago. And I'd written to him telling him how well that I thought that he had answered our questions in the, on the ordination council. And I, I told him that I was happy that here was another young man who had surrendered to preach the doctrines of grace. This is part of the letter that he wrote back to me. He said, I had always under Pastor Heinrich, that's the pastor of the church there, I had always under Pastor Heinrich understood the doctrines of grace and embraced them. But when they pierced my guts... And they connected with his glory. I grew wings. I did not even need a Red Bull. Now, I think maybe some of you might connect that. I don't know. He said, revolutionary to me. He said, I, 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 I could not understand his loving me. I understood it when I saw it was for his own glory and pleasure. I want others to understand that more than I can say. God is glorious, and we can show it by grace. Whatever the facet, the will of man, depravity, repentance, the cross, all points up to sovereignty. Not a novel thing for me. Precious, hopeful, and now after hiding for years, liberating. And I say amen to that. 
I mean, what's more precious than for God to reveal to us the majesty of his sovereign electing grace? So here are these martyrs, and they're standing before God's throne. They sing with joy in their hearts. And we notice in verses 3 and 4 of Revelation 15, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. And so here is a song of exaltation that's sung by those who are consumed with God's glory. Now we notice also that this is the song of the Lamb. Now Moses' song in Exodus 15 is what we read before. And the song of the Lamb is the last part of verses 3 and 4. And the themes that are here are the very same that we find in Moses' song. Execution. It says, thy judgments are made manifest. Expectation. All nations shall come and worship before thee. Exaltation. Just and true are thy ways, thou king of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. I don't know if that has an effect on you, but to me, things like this are bone-chilling. I mean, I can't think of these saints and the, and the scene that takes place in heaven and listen to their song without getting a lump in my throat. Now, I want you to turn over to chapter 5 for just a moment in Revelation. And here is a, another marvelous scene in heaven. This is a glorious scene. And you and I who are believers, we're going to be a part of this. If you look at chapter 5, verse number 11, Revelation 5, verse 11. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beast and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Do those verses sound to you like God is content to share any of his glory? saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb, and worthy is me, because I had the good sins to believe. I'm worthy because I made a good choice. I'm worthy because I weighed the pros and the cons, and I walked the aisle, and I said the sinner's prayer. And as long as you think like that, you are never going to be released to serve God and glorify Him in self-effacing gratitude. As long as you think that you've played some part in this, and that God did all that he could do, and now he left the rest of it up to you, then you are never going to be able to sing the songs that they sing in heaven. Now, I'm glad that I'm free to serve and glorify Christ from a heart of gratitude, and not because I've been forced to conform to somebody's standard. Now, that's two words down. We've got three to go. I can't finish tonight because I think the next three words are really, really important. These others were as well. So I don't want to cram these into a short space. And, and I really hope that you don't mind that I take time with this text. When I start preaching verses like this, you, you'd be amazed to see them, see them in my office. I'm, I'm, I'm working on this and I'm trying to figure out how am I going to stop this sermon? I mean, I, there's just so many things that the Holy Spirit just floods to my mind that I want to say and I think ought to be said. And that's really why when you see one, two, three-part sermons, that's what happened. 
I just got into the middle of it and I couldn't stop. So I'm giving you more information. But there's so much superficial stuff that's being preached in churches today that not many preachers ever want to look at a text and find something here that strengthens the soul. So I don't mind going slowly. Uh, and I hope that you appreciate getting a chance to savor these verses. And I believe that when John saw this vision in heaven, he was so awestruck by it, he wasn't anxious to get it over with. So let me just wind things down this evening. We're going to take up some more in the next message. But I want to show you once more the similarities between the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. John Phillips writes, The Song of Moses was sung at the Red Sea. The Song of the Lamb is sung at the Crystal Sea. The Song of Moses was a song of triumph over Egypt. The Song of the Lamb is a song of triumph over Babylon. The Song of Moses told how God brought his people out. The Song of the Lamb tells how God brings his people in. The Song of Moses was the first song in Scripture. The Song of the Lamb is the last. The Song of Moses was sung by a redeemed people. The Song of the Lamb is sung by a raptured people. And I think the connections here are just marvelous. It's, it's great to see the desires of God's people have not changed. You go all the way back to the Old Testament and the hope and the desire that the people of Israel had to go into the, to the land of Canaan and to establish that land, it hasn't changed. And it'll be the same when we see the glorious millennial kingdom come in because God will once again reestablish Israel upon the earth. And for all these years of time that have gone by, God keeps marching towards that eternal purpose. And I find it very, very hard to believe that God has any variables in this yet to figure out. I find it hard to believe that God's intentions are dependent upon certain contingencies that have to be fulfilled, uh, I mean, by people. It seems clear to me that what God does is he... Uh, proceeds with a divine plan. He has all the parts of it that are finely tuned. Every part is in perfect working order. And that is the exact reason why God is able to give us a book of prophecy. A book of prophecy with a certain fulfillment. And that's because God has it all ordered and worked out and planned. There is nothing left here to be determined. Now these are people that in Revelation 13 verse 8, if you go back there, And I mentioned this morning, these are people whose names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life from the foundation of the world. And the prophecy here is being fulfilled for them. And they sing and they glorify God, not because the plan depended upon them, but because God works it all out. God uses men. There's no question about that. God uses us as instruments to carry out his purposes. But don't you ever think that because God uses you, that that... gives you the right to slide over into the driver's seat. It doesn't. I'm content to let God do it all. And the reason is because he always does things well. He never makes a mistake. And when you get that truth down into your soul and you really understand that, it cures a lot of your ills. It takes away your worry. It takes away vanity. It takes away, um, or it should say, it gives you hope and it guarantees assurance that you have in God. And here's what I want to be, and I hope the same is true for you. I don't want to be anything other than God's instrument. And I say, God, use me. Do whatever it is that you want to do with me. Use me for your glory. That's all that I want to do. And as you use me for your glory, God, you take all the credit for it. I don't want any of it. You take it all. And this is why I don't want you to applaud me when I walk into this room. I don't want you to stand up and cheer for me. 
You don't need to do that. Sit right where you are and glorify God. All I want to do is be an instrument that God uses. So I want my song to be, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you brought us into this place tonight. We don't want to do anything here other than give all glory to you. If we have a message here that completely strips man of all of his pride, of any involvement in our own salvation, there is no part of this that belongs to us. When we have scriptures that teach us that, help us to see that very clearly. And that, again, we are here for only one reason, to glorify your wonderful name. And we do look forward to that day when we stand before the throne of God and with thousands, ten thousands, thousands upon thousands, we sing the song of the Lamb. Lord, we're waiting for that. And all glory and honor goes to you. Bless us as we sing tonight, Lord. We praise your name for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.